0: guy who sent me a video and he wanted me to look at it he he goes to a Catholic church and is um, he's been he's about 40 years old whatever I'm obviously 25 so there's a lot of differences that it is that we're going to have for conversation which is incredible um, but what was really exciting is he sent me this video because he heard someone preaching in a church and he was asking what it is that I thought about it and one of the things that I ended up hearing throughout the, the preaching and I'm not going to go and give every detail about it but it basically the main idea of it was that we don't simply obey God for Him, but saying that we obey God for ourselves. We do it for ourselves because when we're happy, that makes God happy. And all of it, everything about this uh, few minute video was so centered on God just wants you to be happy. Everything was about us and absolutely had nothing to do with anything about God. And it's a very large church, very um, well-known individuals, and it was something that that kind of broke my heart because in this conversation, you're starting to realize more and more what it is that's out there. You look at the Bible, and how how often do we see a warning about false teachers, and we hear preaching that's all about how it is that we can just make ourselves better and how things can be good for us. Um, And it breaks my heart because... In that message, and in these messages, there is absolutely no gospel, there is no Christ, there is no crucifixion, no resurrection, none of the gospel is present. Um, and it breaks my heart, because that's the whole point of everything that we do, and it's becoming so much more common. We look and we see that there will come a day where people don't endure a sound doctrine, and basically Christ is done away with, and that's something that we know we're going to be moving towards. Um, but on the other hand, it was an encouragement um, and even though he's my boss, I think I can still say good things. Um, but I'm thankful for Pastor Ben's willingness to always preach what the Bible teaches, to preach Christ and Him crucified. Because um, it can be easy to sacrifice things that may not appear, um, you know, uh, as far as publicly. It may not always sound the best. Um, but just being so firm and adhering to the Word is just an incredible encouragement for me, especially as a young pastor to be able to come in and sit under him in the way that he teaches that. Um, Because the whole point of what it is that we're doing here this morning is Christ. Amen? Um, So our text this morning is Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a few verses, uh, primarily verses 31 through 37. And we're going to read through the text, and then we'll we'll pray. So again, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 37. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for for this time that we have to be able to come and to sing praises and and lift up your name and recognize um, all of your attributes and recognize your character and to praise and exalt you for that. Father, I I pray that this morning as we um, look through your word that we're able to truly um, see what it is that you would have for us, that we would truly understand this incredible and immense um, love that you have for us, and not only that we recognize that, but that we have the true understanding of just exactly how secure we are um, in your love. Father, I pray that you would allow me to speak clearly uh, this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I will say I, I'm i running very low on sleep. If I'm saying something ridiculous, go ahead and let me know. Um, or if I just fall over, go ahead. Someone can pick me up, probably Dennis. He's, he's strong. Um, so, I love this text, and what we're going to see this morning is that the main point of this text is to help us understand this massive, blood-bought security that we have in Christ so that we are able to suffer well. Um, Some of the songs that we were singing talked about this, right? Um, Standing on the promises of God. God has given us promises, and we can stand firm on them because he always comes through. His promises are always true, and we can always rest secure in them. So as we're looking at this text, we're going to understand a little bit more about this security. But before we jump right into there, I want to just review briefly Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing um, in verses 1 through 11, he's contrasting life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Um, in summation, in Christ there is life, living in the flesh there is death. Um, fairly simple, but an incredible contrast. Verses 12 through 17, we, we see about this being led by the spirit, and there's a reminder of the promise and the inheritance that we receive in Christ. Uh, Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, So he's talking about the spirit of adoption, being in co-heirs with Christ. Verses 18 through 30, there's this anticipation of this future glory and this promise. So he's outlining all of these things, slowly building the case for living Christ, because there's life in Christ, as opposed to flesh, which brings death. We're being led by the Spirit, and as a result of that, you become co-heirs with Christ. We're adopted as sons, and then he gets to where we're going to be in verses 31 through 37. Uh, Verse 30, I love verse 30 just to kick us off, it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And what I love about verse 30 to kind of lead us into our text is that it's an incredible amount of God showing action and God always being there. There's a certainty, there's a security here that those whom he did predestine, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So as we're looking at all of this, there's a lot of things that can be encouraging to us. Um, but as we're going to look at this passage, we're going to see that there is a firm, unshakable security in God's love. Um, flip over to 1 John chapter 4, just briefly to kick this off. Um, as we're, This idea of God's love is so incredible. Um, because we look at it, and I love First John um, partially because every time you read through it, um, it really—it's a very firm uh, book of the Bible. If you've never read through First John, I encourage you to do so. Um, it's very good for self-examination. Um, but in First John chapter four, verses seven through eleven, this is where we start to truly understand this idea of God and love. First John chapter four, verse seven: Beloved, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We see in verse 8 very clearly that God himself is love. God is so many things, and when we sing songs and we're reading through his word, we're able to look at him, and we're able to understand all of these attributes, and I just love seeing so clearly that God is love. You cannot have true love apart from God. Because God is love. We look at this idea, um, another discussion from my fantasy basketball league, I can't believe I mentioned that twice already in a sermon, but maybe a third, who knows. Um, Had a discussion about what is marriage? The idea of it being something that's simply economic, or is it something that's meant to be much more? And there's another pastor as well in there, and we were able to have have a good discussion talking about how marriage is truly meant to be a reflection of Christ and the church, Christ's love. For the church. And so looking within the context of marriage and this idea of love, we understand pretty clearly from this that you cannot truly love or have a truly loving marriage in the way that God intended for it to be if God is not present in that marriage. Because without God, there is no love. So we're looking all the way through this, and and when we get to Romans 8, we're going to understand a little bit more. About this. Um, And I want to make it clear that as we're talking about this idea of how to be secure when we suffer, this isn't something that's meant to be on top, to be in eternal security on top of earthly comfort or security. Because a lot of times we get caught with, well, I don't want to suffer. I want everything to be comfortable. I want everything to be perfect in this life. And yet we forget what it is that we're doing here, that we're aliens, we're strangers, we're peculiar people on this earth, that we're simply walking through, passing through, that this is not our home. Um, But let's get into verse 31 and 32. So Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So Paul is writing to the Romans and he's making it very clear that simply if God is for us as believers, who could possibly be against us? Do any Old Testament study, look at any story of these great battles. And as men, these are things that you absolutely love. But we see these small groups of people greatly overcoming odds and greatly overcoming all of their enemies simply because of the power of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? We look at the story of Gideon, 300 people going and defeating these massive armies because of God. And so what Paul is writing to them, and as he's building this idea, being led by the Spirit, anticipation of glory, framing it within the eternal context, and saying, don't just focus on the present, but understand where it is that we're going. Understand to set your eyes on this future glory that we'll have with Christ and Paul is basically saying, who can take away our no-condemnation status that we see in chapter 8, verse 1, which says, there is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Are you thankful for that truth this morning? That those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. None. Zero. Absolutely None. And I love it because he's saying, look, God's already made this very clear. There's no condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus, so if he is for us, who can be against us? Is there anyone that could take away your no-condemnation status? Is there anyone that can revoke your salvation, that could undo the work of the cross? And we know that there's absolutely no one that could do that um, Many of Paul's readers were Jews familiar with this Jewish heresy, which was um, talked about a lot at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, this idea that you could not receive salvation without circumcision. So without fully adhering to all of the Mosaic law, without being circumcised, there was absolutely no salvation. And this was something that was very popular. And Paul is writing to confront this and saying, look, if you believe that you have to be circumcised for salvation, then you have to keep all of the law, every single thing. And we've talked about that a lot. Um, And when Pastor Ben did a study in Galatians, that was kind of a main theme of going against these Judaizers and understanding that it's not about circumcision, it's faith, it's Christ. We're justified through faith. Verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And what he's saying here is, would God do less after you are saved than he did prior? We look at Romans 5 8 and we understand that, that God sent his son to die while we were still sinners. He did that before you were saved. Why would he do any less now? Verse 33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth." So again, verse 33, who should bring a charge? Is there anyone that can even come up against you? We, we can get caught in this a lot because what we understand is that Satan is always constantly trying to bring charges against God's people, trying to come to God. We see this very familiar, um, it's very familiar with the story of Job, right? Goes in and says, hey God, you understand that your guy Job only loves you because you've given him everything, because he has all of these things. If you take these things away, he won't praise you anymore. He'll curse you. He's, he's not going to love you anymore. All of these charges are being brought forth, and Satan is consistently trying to bring charges and try to um, have us bickering and infighting so that we feel less secure in what it is that God has done for us, so that we are less secure in our faith. And he's simply saying in verse 33, Who should bring a charge? Is there anyone that can bring a charge against God's people? And simply saying, No. Because who is the one that is the judge? Who is the one that makes someone justified? It's God. God is the one that does that. God is the one who, who justifies. Verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Is what we're going to see. Who is he that condemneth? And then notice the answer. It's not the same thing. It's not just saying, Okay, you know, God is the one who's able to do this. But verse 34 who is he that condemneth? And instead of, before giving all of this grammatical um, things with big words that are hard to pronounce in public, um, just understand that with these different participles and with these, these parts of speech, that the whole focus of verse 34, it places everything on Christ. It's not simply a question and answer, but the way that it's written is to actually place the focus each and every time on the person of Christ. So we're seeing... Who is the one who condemns? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We get we get four pictures here of Jesus Christ and each time it's placing all of the emphasis back on what it is that Christ did. So we're going through this and he's simply saying to them who, who can bring charges against you? No one can. God is the one who determines that. Who is the one that can condemn you, saying that no man can, but every, every bit of this, this focus and this attention is on Christ? And I want us to look at these four pictures because, again, each and every part of this, and as we know with Paul, he's always trying to bring back the gospel. Anytime he's speaking, you can hardly go a whole chapter without the gospel being right up front. We see four pictures of Christ within this this verse in verse 34. It is Christ that died. It is Christ that is risen again. It is Christ who is at the right hand of God. It is Christ who makes intercession for us. So this first picture we see Jesus Christ died and this idea of condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? It's because Jesus Christ died on the cross Mark ten forty five says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul is wanting us to know him as the one who died, know him as the one who gave his life to forgive our sins. Ephesians chapter one verse seven. Know him, know Jesus as the one who became the curse. Galatians chapter three verse thirteen. As he's going through here, the writer and Paul is simply trying to point out that everything is Christ. The attention should be paid to Christ. Simply wanting us to know him, wanting this audience to know who Christ is. So in all of this understanding, it all comes down to know him. Know Christ, the one who died, the one who gave his life to forgive our sins, who became the curse to fulfill the covenant. Know him as the one who gave his life to show his love for us. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The second picture we get is that Jesus Christ was raised, which is incredible because there's there's many um, instances of of individuals um, that other religions will will praise and they will worship of ones who may have who have died and have passed but have not risen again. And we look at Jesus Christ being the one who was raised from the dead. It's an incredible and very foundational and key point of the truth of the gospel, isn't it? Any man could have died on the cross. Any person would have perfectly fulfilled the idea of a sacrifice, but it had to be the perfect sacrifice. It had to be the Son of God. It had to be the one who could take away sins. It had to be the one who could conquer death. It had to be the perfect sacrifice that God would provide. So Paul is saying, know him as the one raised from the dead by the Father. And it's important that we understand that that the Father is the one who raised Christ from the dead, isn't it? Because Jesus died for us, yes, but but also he died for the Father, fulfilling the covenant agreement that it is that he had entered into with Abraham providing the sacrifice, providing the curse. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 makes it clear that death no longer has any dominion. And I love that as we're going through this, through this section here in Romans chapter 8, that as we see struggles and as we endure persecution and as, as suffering comes, that we're able to simply keep everything in this eternal perspective. And that he makes it very clear from verse 32 through verse 34 that when we think about this idea of suffering, keeping it very, very clear that Jesus himself suffered as well. But again, keeping this all in the eternal perspective. see the third picture of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And I absolutely love that picture of Christ, of his death, his resurrection, seated now at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted and most referenced psalm in the New Testament and in the early church. It would have been something that they would have said frequently, frequently to one another. Everyone is understanding of it, and I love this psalm says, The Lord said unto my Lord, this is God saying unto Christ, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Incredible picture of the power of Christ, this full dominion of him seated at his right hand, waiting for the time where his enemies will become his footstool. And we look at Revelation and we see this glorious return of Christ where he comes back, um, not as, as someone that's carrying a lamb around and looking um, like a pretty pretty soft individual and looking very carefree, but comes back as an incredible warrior, as someone with incredible power. and he comes back to make his enemies his footstool. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Says which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in the one, which is to come. We see incredible security in the fact that, that Christ not only died, not just that he raised, but he's seated at the right hand, waiting to make his enemies' footstool. It's easy at this time to, to when we endure suffering to sit and to say, um, much like what it is that we see this interaction with Job and understanding that in suffering, all we want to do is cry out to God and say, God, this is not fair. Why am I enduring these things? Why is it that this is happening to me? Why is it that I must suffer all of these things? And what Paul is saying is simply he's offering the truth and making it very clear that that not only can we endure these things, and not only can we make it through these sufferings because of what Christ did for us, but that we should have incredible hope and security in those things, understanding that our hope of future glory is not here on earth. How sad would it be if this was the only thing that we had to look forward to? It would be the Broncos game today, which actually was Thursday, and they, got, they lost, right? They lost? I'm not a Broncos fan, in case you can't tell. Um, but there's so much that's going on in this idea. We, we look at suffering, and all the time, when bad things come our way, we so quickly rush to, God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? And all we want to do, and at times, we even tell other people, yeah, that's not fair. Here, here's something that I always tell my kid. It's not supposed to be fair. Like, life is not going to be fair. All of you have endured some form of suffering at this point in your life, and you are very well aware that everything in this world is not fair. Fair is a lie. What we see is Paul, he's saying, look, there's going to be suffering. We see that he was certainly one that endured it himself. He's given his own resume, and he said, basically, I've suffered more than any of you. But I do so for the sake of the gospel. So when I suffer, I know why it is that I'm suffering. We understand this idea of Christians overseas being consistently killed and slaughtered now. Not just early church, but today. There will probably be more tomorrow. This is the very present reality for so many people. And what Paul is writing to them here is he is saying, look, no one can bring charges against you. No one can take away this idea that you are eternally secure in Christ. No one else can condemn you. No one can do that because you are eternally secure in the hands of Christ, the one who died, the one who has been raised, the one who is at the right hand of the Father, waiting to make his enemies his footstool. And this fourth picture, after he portrays Christ as the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who is seated at the right hand, has Jesus as the intercessor. I love that. Because we see a picture of Jesus standing next to the Father and standing with him. And when he, he's up there and he's done, his work is already done. But as 1 John, 2, 1 John chapter 2 puts it, he's our advocate. He represents what it is that he has achieved. The accomplishment of the work that is already done, fully done. There's no more work left for Christ to do to bring salvation. It has been done. Hebrews chapter 10, the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, it's done. We saw a couple weeks back that after Christ Christ died, he was raised, he's at the right hand. He sat down because his work was accomplished. It's done. We don't have to have this idea of what is it that I'm going to do tomorrow so that I can earn God's favor. How can I please God tomorrow through what it is that I'm going to do? Everything that he's saying is to simply know Jesus. Know him. Paul was very skilled and very um, knowledgeable of, of the Jewish law. He was a rabbi. He understood all of this, this law that they were supposed to be following, and everything that he does is to, to counter that and say, "Look, know Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. The law that you were so proud of, that you're trying so hard to follow, Christ is the fulfillment of that. Everything that that was doing was a type, and a, it was a shadow of what of these things to come." Suffering is not something that is easy, but but we look at this, and I want it to be an encouragement that we have this incredible security in Christ, not just in his promises, but that his work has already been done. And if we've placed our trust in him, if we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we have security that we can endure present suffering because of the hope that we have in Christ. That when things happen in the world or things happen to us individually, we can say, yes, this is awful. But this is not my home. This home here, being on earth, this is not the end game for me. This is not where I want to live out the rest of my days and that's, that's it. Um, I think it was Spurgeon um, someone, but saying that when we were all born, each individual was born to live forever. But there's, there's two different very kinds of forever there, right? Eternity with the Father or eternity in torment. But each person is going to live forever. And so we look at this and we have the incredible security that suffering in this time, we have security in the future because of this hope of this future glory that we have in Christ. Verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him that loved us. In verse 37, just in case we get confused, makes it very clear that we're not conquerors because of our of our skill, because of our knowledge, but because of him that loved us. We can conquer death. We can conquer this suffering. We can do all of these things because of Christ. In verse 38 and 39, "...for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an incredibly powerful truth to close out Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that. So so we look at it and we're able to clearly see this, this security that we have in Christ that we can be more than conquerors and that in verse 34 we get these pictures of Christ as the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who's seated at the right hand, the one who is acting as intercessor and as our advocate. So that when charges come up against us, someone can make a charge and God can say, yeah, that may be true, but when I look upon my Child, I see Jesus. I see we're clothed in his righteousness. And I absolutely love the book of Romans as a whole because it gives so much theology and so much doctrine and so much just gospel truth and about who Christ is. Because it makes it very clear that without Christ, we are absolutely nothing. We look at Romans chapter 1 and we see this incredible wrath of God And I understand that that as as we talk about love, it's easy to always emphasize love of God, love of God, love of God. And you hear that so often, but very rarely do we ever hear that there is also a wrath of God, which necessitated the love of God, because would God have had to send his son to die for us if there was no wrath to be poured out? Jesus became the curse of the covenant. Jesus took upon the full wrath of God when he died on the cross our punishment he willingly took that for us and so as we come to believe in him we we can then we become secure who is he that condemneth it is christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of god who also maketh intercession for us who shall separate us from the love of christ absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God, through Christ. God's love so so poured out, and it's one of those things that, that, that Paul tries to make it very clear, that we are going to suffer, and he never says that God is going to remove us from suffering, but simply that we can conquer it, that we have the hope. Everything that he did was for the sake of the gospel, the hope of this glory in the future. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for for today, we do thank you that that you did show us your love, that you that you willingly sent your son to die for us while we were still sinners. And God, it's a it's a it's a death and a truth that we are so undeserving of, and we're so understanding that that we did deserve death, that that we continue. Um, to show that each and every day, and, and Father, I, I pray that that reflecting upon this text, that we can rest um, secure in your promise, rest secure in the fact that that we are eternally secure in your promise, and that that when you when you make a promise, that you are so true to fulfill it. Father, we're thankful for for the blood of Christ. We're thankful for his death on the cross, um, and we're thankful that that he didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose again, and he's now seated at your right hand, making intercession for us. God, it's a truth that many of us who know you are are very, very familiar with, um, but something that we we ought to reflect on and, and truly understand more and more, that we can be secure in you, that we don't live each and every day wondering, um, if, we're, if we can be secure with you, we, we don't have to wake up each and every day trying to find a way to become right with you again. But that we are justified and made righteous through our faith in Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful for your goodness and for your grace this morning. We're thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your word which um, reveals you and who you are and your son to us. And God, I, I just pray that each and every one of us here this morning, that we would come to know you. That as we know you, we would seek to show you to other people that we wouldn't simply be a people that say, um, to come and see, come and see what it is, and come and see how I, how I love Christ, but that we would go out and be willing to show other people what it is that you've done for us. In a time where people can grow weary and anxious about what is going to happen um, between Um, election and the economy and all of these things that seem uncertain that that we can actually have a certainty we can have a security and that is solely found in you that we know that regardless of what may happen here on this earth we know that you are perfectly and fully in control that you are over all things and God we're thankful that you've revealed to us the truth of your promise It's in Jesus name amen